0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across ASEAN. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Broncos. In the last episode of season three of The Green Room, I speak with Sherry Jiang, co-founder and CEO of Bluejay, a Web3 startup that uses a decentralized stablecoin protocol to issue stablecoins PEG to non-US currencies. Sherry is from California, spent her early career in big tech and social impact, and moved to Singapore in 2018 with Google. She spent time working on Google Pay in India and had a first row seat to the challenges to financial inclusion with Web2 payments. Seeing the infrastructure possibilities with Web3, Sherry founded BlueJay a little over a year ago in Q3 of 2021. BlueJay mints emerging market stable coins and manages a pool of capital to maintain a peg that reflects a real world value of currency has become especially useful for cases like cross-border business payments and payroll. BlueJay's first market is Singapore, and they're looking to expand across Asia. They closed a 2.9 million seed round in July. You can learn more about them by visiting bluejay.finance. And now a word from our sponsors.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular Apexplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as a, a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apixplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com, where you'll find a lot of great Panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time, and uh, look forward to seeing you there.
2: So, Sherry, we've been friends since before you started BlueJay and have been talking about you coming on the Green Room since then. And I am so excited to welcome you on the Green Room today. I'm so excited to be here too, Amrita. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Sherry, let's first start talking about your background you grew up in California. You went to UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. And then you did the super California thing and joined big tech, uh, Amazon. <laughs> Tell me about that. Did, did you always know that you wanted to join the tech world? How much of your surroundings growing up in California um, may have influenced that?
3: Yeah. Actually, what's funny is um, I didn't originally think I would go into tech as my first job out of school. I thought I was actually going to work in finance. Um, so I did a business degree At UC Berkeley, and I think at that time you kind of had like three options that you you know were more commonly going to do. We call them the ABCs: either accounting, banking, or consulting. So I actually interned in banking. So I did a summer um, in investment banking, and I was in San Francisco. And so that was actually my first kind of big exposure in a professional way to the tech industry, because of course in California you cover, you know, TMT or tech media and telecom. And so um, that's actually what really got me excited about tech, because I just saw some crazy multiples, right? And so I was like, how is this possible from a financial standpoint? And I just saw that it's one of those it was one of those industries that just was, you know, grows super fast and you can actually create kind of products that get to millions and millions of people and impact them right away. So I think Post that. Obviously, I didn't go into finance; as my full-time job. But it made me realize that, like tech, is something that I might enjoy a little bit better. And especially because I heard from some of my you know older peers that it's a much more autonomous environment where you kind of you know use your creative juices, work on projects that you find inter- interesting, and just you know had had a much more. kind
2: of innovative type of environment. So that's really how I ended up in tech. That's amazing. And I think definitely some of that California osmosis uh, (laughs) was happening. Um, That's great. So after Amazon, I think you did a couple of really cool things that I also want to spend some time on. I think Delta Analytics was a company that you worked with where you helped nonprofits use data to create a positive social impact. Concurrently, you co-founded Code for Community, which provided free tech consulting services to nonprofits. Tell me about these experiences and how they were connected. Yeah. So look, I knew
3: that I wanted to work in something that was a cross-section between social impact and then business sustainability, right? And quite honestly, there weren't that many jobs that you can do that got you right into it right out of school. So while I was working like a normal tech corporate job, I wanted to make sure that in my free time, I was actually using my skills like data analysis, um, product management, project management for something that I thought was doing some kind of good. And so that's how I, um, you know, Got involved with or founded these various NGOs that did exactly that. So just as a little bit of background, the code for community is something that I actually started when I was at Amazon with a few of their colleagues that basically brought together engineers, either front end or back end, that created different projects for NGOs that didn't necessarily have tech resourcing or whenever they hired outside, you know, tech talent was pretty expensive. And, you know, NGOs aren't necessarily making as much money as private organizations. So we worked with NGOs on, you know, revamping some of their websites. Like some of them had not changed since quite honestly, like the early 2000s. So like we, you know, actually redid some of the websites. Another interesting project we did was we created actually an inventory management software for uh, an education NGO that actually brought uh, brought books to different schools um, around the Bay Area. Delta Analytics was another one that I got involved with where basically um, professionals that worked in some kind of like data-related career, either analytics or data science, like worked on projects, again, for NGOs, Mostly actually international, so kind of based in you know Africa, LATAM, etc. And so I was uh, an analyst as well as a project manager for a few different projects there. And one of the most notable ones I remember was actually working with an organization called Aneza Education, where they actually had mobile phone kind of texting educational materials for um, children in Kenya. And one thing that was really interesting is they had this whole database of numbers around engagement that they needed some help to kind of sift through, right? And so we looked at things like, you know, how many questions did people get right or wrong on certain quizzes? What was the general, like, you know, data across different cohorts that were being brought in? And so um, that was a really interesting experience to really kind of dive into some of that data and present some findings to the NGO headset. I've actually never really seen them presented that way. So that's, you know, the gist of what I did. But it was really, you know, quite fulfilling for me because... I didn't necessarily always get that out of my day job, um, working at Amazon
2: and Google. Yeah, no, that's amazing. What a really cool way to use, you know, your skills, your knowledge, working in the private sector to actually impact the public sector NGOs that you know may not have access to those same resources. I think that's so amazing, and that's clearly that vision, that ambition to have a social impact has clearly carried you a lot of the way through your career. Do you like, like where does that come from? Why why do you think that it's important to you to have like a social impact?
3: Yeah. I, I, honestly, I it's hard to explain that one because I feel like I've always just been that way, even from like a young age, right? I remember like when Hurricane Katrina happened and when the tsunami happened, I just felt like I needed to do something other than just like, you know, say well wishes. And so for both of those you know, events, um, I actually like did some kind of like charity kind of money raising that I ended up donating to, to the causes. So it, it may sound really silly. I think I was quite young. But this was like back in the early 2000s, where the tsunami I actually went and uh, created these painted rocks, I basically had all these kids in the neighborhood come together, we collected the smoothest, Best looking rocks we can find around, and then we took chalk and paint, whatever we can find, and just made like crafts, right? And we went around the neighborhood selling them for like you know your plants. I don't know how good some of them looked, but we ended up raising around two thousand dollars and donated it all to the cause. So I feel like I've always felt like if I don't do something in my own power, whether it's like you know you know tapping into the other kids in the neighborhood that wanted to help and my amazing art skills sarcasm but you know <laughs> <laughs> tapping into something that I have to help like I, I feel like you know
2: yeah that's just like part of that was just always part of who I who I was. That's I am, Sherry. <laughs> um, <laughs> one I I think it's 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 inspiring, right? And I think you're right, some of those early experiences are so formative in shaping who we are and how we want to like change the world. Two, when where can I find some of these painted rocks? <laughs> I definitely want one um, for, for my, for my dining table. I like, want to put it as part of my centerpiece. Okay. So let's get back to you and your career working in big tech, right? So you um, were at Amazon, you did all this really awesome, uh, impactful work on the side, and then you moved to Google, right? In, the, in Silicon Valley. So I'm really glad that you moved to Google because that's how you found your way to Singapore. And that's when we met. Um, But how did that happen? And did you know that you wanted to move to Singapore back then in 2018 and and why so? Yeah. So
3: while I was at Google, um, the team that I actually spent the most time on is this one called Next Billion Users, Um, but basically the premise of it was that the next billion internet users coming in from markets like Brazil, Indonesia, India, have different characteristics than the first billion right? coming from the US and Europe. People generally are living in a cash based economy. Data availability is not as high. And, you know, you have to think about building tech products differently than like, oh, this product works in the US and let's we'll just ship it to India. So I was on that team starting in Silicon Valley. And I remember I was just like traveling the world, just really kind of understanding how people interacted with search, interacted with maps in different places. And, um, eventually, you know, I moved on from one of the projects I worked on, which is more focused on internet. Into payments, and I remember this conversation that I had with my manager. Um, he was basically like, "Hey, we're trying to make payments a big thing in India. It's a huge market. We want to grow this big brand new product to something that will be the next, you know, billion user product, right? And um, do you want to work on it from a growth standpoint?" And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds cool." And then he was like, "But you have to move to Singapore. Is that okay?" And I was like, "Hold on, let me think about it." I went home. I took about 48 hours and then I was basically like, I already am, you know, spending so much of my time understanding and learning about, you know, user interactions with tech in markets outside the US. Um, why not just move much closer to the market, right? And have that experience in Southeast Asia and South Asia. So in 48 hours, I came back and was like, yeah, let's do it. And so that was probably one of the most like decisive moments I had in my life, but when I like, absolutely do not regret at all. So packed my bags about two months later. This was like May of twenty eighteen, flew over to Singapore. I actually didn't even go to Singapore before I decided to move there. And then turns out to be one of the best decisions I've made. And so I was on the Google Pay team for about three years. Um I was based out of Singapore but spent most of my time on the Indian market and, you know, went to all different cities, North, South, across India. And I quite honestly think it was one of the most formative experiences I had in my professional life on top of what I was doing with the NGOs because it really opened my eyes to how technology specifically can have an impact in terms of financial inclusion. So what was really amazing to me beyond just like, you know, our bets on building on this peer to the bank to bank um, system called UPI, what really stood out to me was like, Every year I went back to the market, I would just see more and more types of people adopting the technology that you wouldn't really expect. So I remember going through the streets of Bangalore and seeing like the you know, vendor in the street corner selling pineapple juice and accepting it with his mobile phone. And just seeing that level of progress in the time that I was working on Google Pay was just enormous. So to me, that really solidified my specific commitment to
2: working on something that combined technology and, and financial inclusion. Yeah, that's amazing, Sherry. I think you were also in India at such a amazing, amazing time when they were, you know, with UPI, they just totally leapfrogged so many other countries that have, you know, quote unquote, more advanced financial mm-hmm. systems. It must have been really fascinating to be there at the time. How did all of your work at Google and particularly in India on payments inform, you know, your thesis around starting Bluejay. Yeah. So
3: while I was working on, you know, web2 FinTech, I felt like there was always something missing in terms of what you can actually do at the infrastructural level. So there was a lot of like, Impact you were creating by um, having these applications built on top of things like UPI that made it much easier and much more user friendly to kind of interact with and send money and you know really understand how you can use a digital financial application. But the problem was the infrastructure underneath was still built on legacy systems, right? So one of the things I remember that were, you know, a little frustrating when I was working on Google Pay was how little impact we could actually have on transaction failures that would happen for our users, which was really frustrating for them. So just a little bit of context here is that there's a kind of multi-PSP or payment service provider network that we we're depending on that kind of linked or dependent on the rails of various existing banks, right? And so if a bank was actually going through an outage, then that would actually cause the transaction failure for GPay, And so it wasn't really something that we could actually control. So the user would have a bad experience, blame us. And then we're like, we, there's not a whole lot we can do outside of trying to maybe lobby certain organizations and get them to maybe potentially patch up their, their own kind of availability of the tech. The other thing that was also, I remember, frustrating is like, we thought that subscriptions or recurring payments would be a really good use case, especially linking Google Pay with things like YouTube right, or Google Play. But for a while, the standard for UPI didn't support a recurring payment. So we couldn't even really do it. And so it made me realize that actually there's, there's a lot on the layer below that is still depending on this legacy infrastructure that has been around for decades. It hasn't really had a ton of innovation outside of just you know, patchworks of bilateral agreements and just applications built on top. And so my ambition for Blue Jay or why I decided to do Blue Jay is to actually go back and just understand how we would build this financial stack from scratch if we were to kind of reimagine it and just make it work much
2: better and much more cheaply for people around the world. That's amazing, Sherry. And do you, I guess now you're Uh, squarely in the Web3 space, do you find that the infrastructure in Web3 is actually living up to that promise? So I would say that it's still early days in Web3. And I know that this
3: is a word that gets or phrase that gets repeated a lot. I think that the infrastructure shows a ton of promise, right? Just as a reference, right? When you send money via TransferWise or Swift or some other kind of, you know, network that helps you send money from one country to the other, it sometimes can take multiple days. Sometimes failures happen and you have no idea why it happened, right? There's not really good error messaging. And there's all these fees that get accrued along the way because it's basically you're like linking together a bunch of different siloed different banks or, you know, entities that ultimately fulfill the transaction. In web three, that can happen a hundred times faster and a hundred times cheaper. Like I actually remember from our own fundraising process. Actually, it was so much easier to receive investments in USDC from our investors. It would happen in matters of seconds. You can actually see the transaction on the blockchain. Someone will send you like the the actual you know the transaction that you can track, and it's just so easy. And when we were receiving investments in fiat into our bank account, I mean, two of them got blocked because they're you know banks obviously wondering why suddenly we're getting you know, 250K in her bank account. Other times there were errors that happened because people forgot to put parentheses in certain names for the organization. So there's all these things that were just very painful, right? And so I think that the technology at an infrastructural level shows a lot of promise. I mean, it just, it just works a lot better. It's a lot more transparent. Now, what's stopping all of this from, you know, basically taking over all the financial rails in the world, I think there are a couple of things. Number one is that you know scalability and speed is still something that needs to be worked on. So for those who are somewhat familiar with how blockchains work, there's things called layer one blockchains, which are like usually like the, the base kind of blockchain layer, like um, Ethereum is an example, Avalanche, Solana are the other ones. And Ethereum is known to be, you know, high in some of the fees, right? But there's this evolution right now where There's these layer twos that are being built, which kind of I would say function kind of like the retail rails in traditional finance versus the wholesale rails. So they're much faster, much more scalable, but they're very new in their ecosystem, right? So ones that you may have heard of off of Ethereum are like Polygon, and then obviously uh, Arbitrum and Optimism as other ones. So I think there's still some innovation and work that needs to happen on the, the scaling side of things but i think the other thing that's stopping you know web3 rails from completely taking over like traditional finance is also the i would say the kind of end experience right so what's that layer on top and so one of the areas that you know i think is a huge opportunity is actually building that data layer on top of on top of you know on, on top of the settlement layer as well so being able to actually direct payments to different end use cases in the most efficient way just like how stripe actually does it for traditional kind of like merchant payments i think that entire experience is still super new and needs to still be built out yeah makes sense makes
2: sense and i think we could honestly i could ask you a million questions we could be here all day talking about like the evolution of web3 yeah um but i do want to take us back to blue Jay. that's why we're here maybe going going back there obviously with all of this web3 infrastructure that is you know, sounds like way more efficient than Web 2. How did you decide to start BlueJay? I, I remember when we first met, you were kind of bouncing around a bunch of different ideas for BlueJay. There was, you know, we talked about everything from like payments remittances. Yeah. How did you land on BlueJay as these emerging market stable coins? And yeah, what is BlueJay? How does it work? Tell, yeah. us, tell us the story of BlueJay.
3: Yeah, for sure. BlueJay was actually. A company that was incubated out of this program called Entrepreneur First, which I joined after I basically quit my job at Google and just kind of went for it 100%. And I actually met my CTO and now co-founder Raymond through Entrepreneur First, who actually has the background in blockchain engineering. So he was actually working in GovTech, which is the tech arm of the Singapore government. So he's done a lot of the different ledger based system projects for that. Now, when we were Initially working together and iterating on ideas, we were looking to actually solve for cross border remittances because it's something that we felt like in the payments world was still this hugely unsolved need where no matter what type of products were coming out, you still had like super high fees or suboptimal experiences between certain corridors. And so, after like looking at what we can actually do to improve the remittance experience, we felt like it was very hard to do it within the traditional rails because there was no way you couldn't work through some intermediary. And so we thought about what it would be like to re-envision the stack for remittances. And we're like, what if we actually depended on the supply of different stable currencies or stable coins for, for this instead, and then have like a remittance app built on top of it? What we found is that there really wasn't a supply of like Singapore dollar or Philippine Peso or any of these like stablecoin currencies that exist, like most of it was US dollar based. If you were to use US dollar to facilitate the remittances, then you're dealing with the extra fees that you may have when you hop through different currencies, as well as some like foreign exchange risk. So then we kind of went down the stack and we like, what if we were to build out these stable coins and then support applications like remittances that we were initially setting out to solve? And so... That's how we got to where we got to with Bluejay, even though initially was starting out with how do you solve like a you know a a pain point currently within the within the payments ecosystem. Now, Bluejay, in a nutshell, is a stablecoin protocol that is focused on non-USD currencies. Now, a protocol just simply means uh, like a technology that is built blockchain native that can. You know, that's created via smart contracts to, to do a number of different transactions. And so what we have as backing for our stable coins, that's, you know, a little bit different than maybe what you hear with other stable coins is that we use USD stable coins, our existing supply of stable coins to back the non-USD ones instead of having to depend on the supply of, you know, fiat currencies as that backing for, for the different stable coins. Let me also take a step back, as I realize, like maybe for those who aren't familiar with what stablecoins are, stablecoins are, I would say, a recent, not super recent invention, but one that only grew recently in like the last two three years. Originally, the crypto space was, you know, dominated by like volatile assets like Bitcoin and Ether. But what made it tough to trade as with with Bitcoin or Ether as the base pair is that they're they're volatile, right? And so. You wanted to be able to like park your money, or you know, money that you want to deploy later into something that stays at a you know certain value, and so that's actually where stable coins that were packed in USD became popular. So that's like USDT, that's like USDC, Dai, etc. Now, most of the world's stablecoin supply, almost 99% or higher, is, is USD based, and there's not really a whole ton that are in other currencies right now. But there's a ton of use cases and opportunities that we saw with these non-USD ones, including, you know, eventually supporting cross-border remittance use cases.
2: So that's kind of why we decided to create BlueJay to target this specific market gap that we were seeing. Got it. And first, thank you for breaking it down into a, a Web2 language. I appreciate that. I'm sure our listeners will too. But I, you know, I have to ask the question you know, it sounds like if you went down this like theoretical path to kind of get to, you know, from like remittances to non-USD stablecoins. And so that's, you know, it, it's an amazing theory. I guess my question is, how do you know that there's actually demand for it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting question, right? Because to me, there's like the, the theoretical part where I was like, from just a, just from a conceptual point of view, it just makes sense, right? Like if you do believe that, like crypto rails or crypto native rails will eventually be the future um, because it's more composable, it's faster, more efficient. Yes, right? Do you believe that there's gonna have to be some kind of stable currency that powers this? And for most people, that would probably be a yes from what we've seen in in the in the last couple of years. But then will the entire world supply of stable points only be in one currency? From a macro point of view, that, that sounds like, honestly, a little far-fetched to me because there's so many, I mean, so many governments, I'm sure that wouldn't want the US dollar to be the only stable coin that people are using um,
2: in in a particular
3: country. And plus, there's still a lot of connection to the local economy that people will still need to have, and they still think in their local currency. So from a conceptual point of view, right, that made sense to us. Now, to the question of like, where does this demand in the earlier stages come from? It's really in places where there's a current need that needs to be solved for, especially from players that are trying to create products for the markets that we're looking at. And so um, one of the areas that we are actually investing a lot of time in is actually seeing how our like Singapore dollar or Philippine peso stable coins will be used by... Lending players in DeFi that are actually doing this for more real-world use cases. Now, lending in DeFi has historically been more or less for speculative reasons. Right, it allows you to uh, basically lever up if you're very long a particular position, um, and that was the you know the, the genesis for a lot of the the borrowing and lending. But more and more people realize that this could actually be used for creating a much more I guess, open system for capital to come in to be distributed to any number of places where capital is needed. And so actually one example that I I always talk about because I really love what they do is Goldfinch. Um, So basically Goldfinch is a real-world lending protocol that connects borrowers and lenders around the world. And they service specifically SMEs, our small to medium enterprises, in emerging markets, so the lenders themselves can earn a sustainable yield because a yield is actually going towards these businesses that are,
2: you know,
3: building new locations, um, expanding their operations and earning more revenue to pay back the loans, right? And so for a lot of these markets, again, they're outside the US. So there's a bit of friction to use just USDC in the loan pools currently, which is what's available. Cause number one, like if you are dealing with Earning revenue in Philippine peso, but they had to pay back a loan in USD. There's foreign exchange risks that you have to deal with because it doesn't really match up. Um, and then, of course, from a just on and off ramp perspective, um, it's really difficult, actually, even in today's current world, to do that outside of a US market. This is just one example. Goldfish is just one example of all these different players that are emerging that are like, there's such cool technology. And primitives are created in DeFi. Let's actually apply this to the trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar credit gap around the world. And so they're not alone. And what's and one of the interesting things that have happened is we've actually had players or protocols reach out to us because they found our solution online. And so when I think about like how you know your product actually has demand. One of the signals I look for is: is there, is there actually inbound questions that come your way? Are there people actually searching for a solution to to the problem? And so when that happened, right, it was this. Uh, again, it was another lending, a real world lending protocol that was focused specifically on like solar and sustainability projects. Um,
2: in, in Southeast Asia, they reached out and we had an initial conversation. So that was, I think, pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And I. Uh, love that you mentioned Goldfinch. Um, we had Aaron Colette from Goldfinch on the show a few weeks ago, and I think he he echoed some of what you said around like the importance of emerging market stablecoins to actually make those transactions that those SME borrowers that they have on on their platform are you know actually find really useful. So that's definitely a really big use case. Are there any other use cases that you're really excited about? Yeah. So I'm also really excited about the payment
3: use case as well. So one of the other areas that we are building use cases around is actually um, payments for remote work, especially for the Singapore dollar. So Singapore is a pretty small country, but in general, there's a lot of you know different companies that are domiciled here that hire around the region, around the world. And so things like payroll is... Actually, quite challenging um, if you think about it from a cross-border perspective, and so um, that's another one that we're pretty excited about as well. And personally, something that we actually experience as a pain point because we have staff that we you know hire and work with from outside outside of Singapore, and we we end up actually using crypto because it's just so much easier than having to deal with bank transfers, etc. So payments is definitely another you know major use case. The the other thing that I think is really exciting about what we build is I actually think about us as not just a product, but we're actually a platform. So I think of us as like almost like an operating system, like the way Android, op- Android operates. And so there's going to be other use cases that potentially can pop up that we don't even know about just yet, but we're going to provide the stablecoin layer. And then we want to actually encourage through different ecosystem grants and programs to actually bring in people to build on the stable points for whatever markets that they're, you know, from or interested in helping. And so I think in some ways, like what I really like about Web3 is that it's not just, you know, what the, you know, the team, the core team has in terms of the roadmap, but also the community can have an impact as well
2: on what we end up actually supporting. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, fascinating. I can't wait to see all of these use cases to c- come to life. Uh, we'll be living in a sci-fi novel very soon. So Sherry, I think going back to like how BlueJay actually works, can you explain again in Web3 noob language, you know, how, how does it work? What are all of the different assets that are part of the protocol? Yeah. Explain it. Explain it to <laughs> someone someone who is not totally down the Web3 rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, So how this relates back to Blue Jay's design and how it works
3: is, um, number one, um, from the article of faith perspective, we want to make sure that we're actually creating a solvent system and that the currency that we're minting and putting out there in supply actually has an equivalent amount of assets actually backing it in our protocol treasury. So think of this as, you know, back in the day when the U.S. dollar actually had the gold standard backing like one to one before obviously that went away, Um, we actually want to create that same kind of system or article of faith with with Blue Jay. And so what this means is if there is 100 million in Blue SGD or the Blue Jay uh, Singapore dollar stable coins out there in supply, we have at least $100 $100 million worth of USD stablecoins that are sitting in our treasury, probably, you know, $110, 120000000 to, you know, actually take into account the buffer that's needed for any foreign exchange risk. And if you think about this also from a, an accounting perspective, it just basically means that you have assets that are actually higher than the liabilities that you have out there. So in case people actually want to swap back the stablecoins that they have into USD, or the reserve um, stablecoin currency out there that's actually possible. So that's how we established the first part. Now, the second one on stability. So there's a couple pieces to know about this. So because we're not a centralized um, stablecoin where there's a direct minting or redemption mechanism that you may see with uh, USDC and Circle or locally, the S- uh, SGD with great X, we actually do it through the management of the supply and demand for the currency through basically what we call like market operations, right? This is not actually totally unlike how some currencies work in the real world. If you actually look at how some of the Asian currencies like Singapore dollar, Philippine peso actually operate, they're actually backed or soft backed by a basket of global currencies, which um, sometimes include the euro or USD. and. In order to manage that price peg, the central bank will actually trade that local currency against the U.S. dollar pair. And basically, if there's you know greater supply that's created for a currency, it brings the the, the price down. And then if um, if you remove uh, the currency out of the supply, that the price goes up. So we actually do the same thing for our stable coins on the various pools that they're on. So because we're Decentralized finance for stablecoin. Then the distribution or buying and selling will be on decentralized exchanges like Uniswap. So what we will do um, is that we will actually mint the stablecoins and actually deploy our own capital into the pool. So let's say there's you know five million of US uh, USDC uh, on one side and the equivalent in blue SGD. We actually will you know buy and sell the currencies on. That pool specifically to make sure that the peg as is as tight and is as tight and as close to what is reflected in the external foreign exchange market in, in the real world. And so the third part is really around acceptance. And I think this is a little bit less related to the protocol design, but actually more related to how we think about distribution and go-to-market. So I think too often the use cases of primitives created in DeFi are just targeted towards a very crypto-native audience and crypto-native use cases, but that's going to have a TAM, right? Or like a a limitation to the total addressable market. So we actually want to think about acceptance in in a sense that we're supporting a bunch of these use use cases that are taking the technology that's created um, in crypto and making financial products for real-world use cases, right? Be it payments, lending, etc. And so we want to
2: be able to enable that ecosystem that uses our stable coins for all different types of use cases.
0: Got it. Got it. I think there are a lot of moving pieces in there, but I think the punchline for me is that you're creating a lot of different mechanisms with Bluejay
2: to give your end users like confidence that Blue Jay is backed by stable, acceptable currencies. Um, could be cryptocurrencies, could be fiat currencies, but that should give... Your users, um, the confidence they need to use, you know, Blue S G D or Blue P H uh, P in their markets. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely.
0: Excellent, Sherry. I we do we do have to kind of zoom out a little bit and talk about the elephant in the room, which is um, the Terra Luna crash that happened, you know, in May. And I'll share this with the audience, but we actually originally had this
2: interview scheduled for May 13th, <laughs> which was like three days after Luna started its downward spiral. We postponed the interview and I'm glad we did because I think we can look back on that with a lot more clarity, but maybe for our listeners who who may not know exactly what happened, um, can you just give like a quick overview and share like what the impact uh, of that was on Bluejay?
3: Yeah. So I think to give the full story around Terra, I have to probably go into the design of UST or the, the stable point for the Terra ecosystem. And then talk about the events of May that ultimately led to the collapse of, like, actually the biggest collapse that we've seen um, in in crypto, especially for for a stablecoin. So the UST stablecoin is actually created with the original ambition to, you know, have this decentralized money be used across DeFi and be this extremely capital efficient stablecoin that didn't require the same asset requirements that you would see with our stablecoin and other ones out there like MakerDAO's DAI, which is actually over collateralized. Um, so the way that uh, UST worked was it was actually backed by the governance token or the token for the Terra ecosystem called Luna, where basically you can take a uh, dollar of Luna and mint an equivalent dollar worth of UST. And then if you wanted to you know, get rid of your UST, you can actually burn it and get a dollar's worth of LUNA back. But the thing with this model is that it really depended on the user's value of the LUNA token itself, right? And the way that the Terra ecosystem functioned was there was actually a couple of mechanisms in there where basically... The value of Luna actually came from the value of UST because UST was being used as a way for people to buy or yield in this protocol or savings product where you're getting, you know, 20% yield called Anchor. And then Anchor was being be used to borrow, you know, certain assets with leverage for, for Luna as well, right? And so this whole entire system was, was kind of reflecting upon itself. Yeah. Um, so it's reflexive, it's a bit circular. Or, it's a bit circular, right? <laughs> um, And so we'll call it reflexive or, you know, kind of Ponzonomic. You, you can just use those terms. So, <laughs> so, so, so like, it, it works really well directionally, right? So during the bull market, it worked extremely well. It was like a lot of people made a ton of money off of Terra, right? And so that, that worked really well. But the problem of having like the entire system very, very correlated is that when, when market conditions or macro conditions get worse, that's where things you know, start to turn a little south. So one thing that I would say that the Terra team probably realized at one point was that you needed to actually have some kind of asset outside of Luna backing UST. And so that's why this organization called LFG or Luna Foundation Guard was created, where um, Bitcoin was accumulated. I think it was about 3 billion or so it was accumulated to to effectively you know, back um, UST. But if you think about it from an accounting perspective, right? If there's you know 18 billion in usdt supply out there and you have 3 billion in bitcoin you're basically uh you've got liabilities out there that greatly outsee greatly exceed the assets you actually have and so when things things started you know unraveling a little bit around may right basically it was things that were like kind of outside the crypto market that i think triggered some of this like we had you know, rising interest rate hikes, macro conditions were kind of worsening, and so when when that happens, there's there's a lot less confidence and a lot more panic that can ensue. And so, what initially triggered all of this was actually the de-pegging of UST on a pool called Cur- or on on a pool on this dex called Curve, which has. You know, trading between different stable assets. There's a lot of speculation as to whether or not this was a coordinated attack or if it was an accident. But you know, at a time where the U.S. I was the, the Curve three pool that had UST and some other USD stablecoins at the time, where the liquidity was, you know, a little bit lower because the TFL team actually removed it for a new pool that they're creating called Four Pool. Somebody basically made a trade that was a hundred million plus that actually triggered a slight depeg of, of UST. And then, you know, around the same time, there was, you know, a similar kind of sell-off that happened on Binance, which is the centralized exchange. Now that's what caused the re- initial DPEG. And then there was actually a repegging that did happen, like, you know, kind of fairly soon. But that shaken confidence started happening, right? And so when that Got triggered. You basically had this bank run event, where probably the best thing was for people to not freak out and start selling, but people were doing that anyways. And the pegging mechanism or the the redemption mechanism with Luna started failing as well because, you know, at a certain point, if the price, you know, Luna and UST are greatly correlated. It was very hard to get enough people to actually burn ust for luna because the price of luna was dipping and so when you were getting that luna and trying to sell it i mean you were going to lose money on that trade and so it was a classic kind of bank run situation and so yeah that's kind of what happened in may in a very very high level um i would say definitely dig into this more um you know with many of the kind of recaps of what happened um, that was a great overview thank you <laughs> i hope that was helpful um but definitely just touched upon the the high level nansen actually has a very good report on just like what happened they followed a couple of the wallets and did this whole like investigative journalism like report on this so it was really interesting now how this relates to blue jay so i think number one is that faith in stable coins need to be restored and we've actually been spending quite a bit of i would say resources on just like education around different stable coin models so one thing that was um you know really interesting is we actually had a twitter space the week of the terra crash and we actually brought on another stable coin project called angle um they're doing like a euro stable coin that's also decentralized and we just had a conversation about how not all decentralized stable coins have the same model as UST. And actually, for both of our projects, we are collateralized or for an angle, even much more over collateralized, right? And there's a reason behind that, in that you actually have, you know, the reserves and the the actual um, money in the treasury to actually kind of backstop this kind of bank run situation that happened with, with UST. The other thing that, you know, that gave us some thought is that, you know, building out real use cases is incredibly important as well, um, because all of UST really was in this reflexive system. I think the, you know, original founders of UST were probably intending to eventually, you know, expand this out to like a bunch of use cases, right? I don't think the idea was to keep it forever in this reflexive kind of loop, but, you know, it's the same thinking of like any Web2 company like Google, um, Google Pay actually running a bunch of incentives for people to like pay with GPay, but eventually you you have a sustainable model, right? Or sustainable use case. But unfortunately for Terra, they ran out of time, right? They weren't able to actually build those use cases so that people actually had value for UST outside of the yields that they were getting on the, on, on the, on, on the Terra ecosystem. And so a lesson for us is that we need to be really, really thoughtful about how real distribution and real uses, use cases would happen. And so that's why we spend a lot of time thinking about where we should actually place our bets when it comes to how Bluejay stablecoins are being used in these like payment lending use cases that target users and businesses outside of crypto, and not just have it be this like you know reflexive loop
0: within, within crypto. Got it. Got it. I think that that piece around market education on the different types of stablecoin models is is so important, as you said, because I think you know.
2: Certainly, the market is is like really freaked out, and understanding that there are different ways of you know creating that confidence in your stablecoin is just is just so important to to getting the market you know using stablecoins again. I, I guess I have to ask though, like if you know now that we attackers know that they can potentially launch some sort of coordinated attack on a stable coin. Like what does that mean for BlueJay? I mean like yeah. what happens if someone were to just start selling off a bunch of blue SGD? Mm-hmm. What is the like how does how does the mechanism work on the back end? Yeah, yeah. And then the impact on on you know end users of other yeah. blue SGD?
3: Yeah. Yeah so I think number one, we want to do something a little bit different than Terra where we don't want to fragment liquidity for our stablecoin everywhere across different blockchains, across all different DEXs right away. I think they had a bit of this, like, we want UST everywhere. But the problem is, like, it leaves you actually very vulnerable for, for these types of attacks because you're not, like, liquidity is not concentrated and deep enough in one particular place. If it's thinner, then it's a lot easier for a DPEG to happen. So that's, like, the first thing that we're thinking about is making sure that we're, you know. Quite concentrated around where we're actually uh, deploying the capital for the stablecoins, but number two is that um, the way that our model works is that we actually will be using our own capital for many of these different pools, so that like you actually can't depeg it beyond a certain amount. If you know Bluejay, the protocol actually has seventy percent of the liquidity on a particular uh, on a particular pair. Now, the other thing that we have that have kept in mind is, or that we we actually kept in mind when we were originally designing Blue Jays, making sure that for the growth in supply that Blue SGD has, that organic growth that happens, the equivalent amount is actually being added into our treasury. So when that does happen, right? if you think about, again, the sta- Blue SGD stablecoins as essentially a debt or liability and people start selling it back, for USD stablecoins, we actually have the assets in the treasury to actually meet that meet that demand. And so that's where you avoid a bit of that imbalance
2: that that happens in, in, in stablecoin death spirals that you've seen in the past. Got it. So, so Bluejay is building in a bunch of mechanisms that make sure that if there is ever an attack, there's not going to be that death spiral.
3: I mean we do everything that we can um, to you know <laughs> try to avoid some of the, the long tail risks that mm-hmm. may happen with
2: stable coins. Yeah. But I guess I guess you can't account for every single risk. There are probably a bunch of risks that we don't know yet. And I think that's one of the fascinating things about working in this space is you know, there are risks out there and you're trying to constantly, you know, be thinking one to ten steps ahead of those mm-hmm. potential attacks. But I'm super excited about what Blue Jay is doing. And it sounds like you're already thinking ahead um, after this, Carol Luna, you know, all, all of this this drama, but it sounds like you've thought through a lot of really good options. Okay. So, Sherry, I think we're um, just about out of time, but last question for you. Sure. Tell me about what's next for BlueJay. What are you most excited about uh, for BlueJay as well as like the stablecoin ecosystem?
3: Yeah, so what we're very excited about is actually getting this out to the world on mainnet Ethereum in Q4. Uh, We've been working very hard at building. Um, We've launched a testnet, basically a beta out in April we've had 20,000 participants 20,000 plus actually participated in the, the beta um, and really excited about actually bringing it you know out to the world in just a couple of months and actually start getting the you know use cases out there in the world as well so that's what we're super excited about in the shorter term as it relates to bluejay what we're excited about in the longer term for stablecoins in general is how they can play a role in shaping what defi is really meant to do which is make Create a much more open financial system where participants could actually build together, build these composable money Legos that coordinate together in a way that you've never actually seen in traditional finance, right? Where things are just much more siloed and contribute to some of the more sustainable ways that DeFi will actually be used to help capital reach places that it hasn't been able to reach before in a way that's much faster and much more efficient. Like I'm super excited to see how this world plays out and you know I look back on my days in Gpay and I remember like feeling like wow like, I, like how long is this going to take right to get to get get Gpay to over 100 million users in a market like India and it was just 3 years right and that was something that I didn't imagine, but now like, seeing this kind of evolve in front of me right now, I mean, I it's um, like I think it's going to be unbelievable the amount of progress we're going to make. Like we are definitely in like a less bullish market for crypto right now, but I think that that's actually creating a lot of thoughtfulness and com- conversations around what this space is really meant to be. And so I'm excited to really see how you know the everyday business, everyday user starts being able to interact with money in a
2: way that. Hasn't been possible before because of the infrastructure and access that's created through DeFi. That's amazing, Sherry. I'm just thinking, maybe you know, by 2030, you'll get to go to, back to that street corner in India <laughs> to your pineapple juice seller, and you know, see them paying with instead of Google Pay, maybe they'll be paying with you know, blue INR. Uh, how cool would that be? That be that be super cool. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right, full well, circle. Amazing. Um, I'm looking forward to that, Cherry. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been super fun. Um, And for our listeners who don't know, Sherry and I are actually sitting at my dining table right now. (laughs) This is my second in-person Green Room podcast, and it's been so fun, uh, Sherry, having you on the show. Um, Thanks for being here. And thanks for having me. Absolutely.
0: And now a word from our sponsors.
3: Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any FinTech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in The Green Room and forward to supporting The Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would also really appreciate you leaving us five stars and a review. And if you know anyone who would be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.